0: Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with HowStuffWorks, and I love all things tech. And we left off in our last episode... At a point when NVIDIA, a brand new company at that point, was in bad shape, had a shaky start. So if you have not listened to the last episode where I introduced the concept of graphics chips and cards and NVIDIA, go listen to that one first. Anyway, NVIDIA's first product, the NV1, had not really sold super well in the market. It hadn't really captured Uh, a whole lot of market share, and the company had to cancel the NV2 chip after its big partner Sega announced it was going with a different chip designer for the graphics for the upcoming Dreamcast console. But the engineers at NVIDIA rolled with the punches and they went back to the drawing board and designed a new graphics chip that would rely upon the humble triangular polygon rather than the quadrilaterals that the NV1 employed for texture mapping. This would make their new card compatible with Windows-based machines that were running the Direct3D API. And the new card would include Polygon Texture Mapping, which reduced the amount of time it took for the graphics card to render frames, but it had a negative impact on image quality. So what the heck is texture mapping? What does that even mean? It might sound like gobbledygook. Well, it pretty much is what it sounds like. It involves taking a two-dimensional surface called a texture map. Think of it like wallpaper or wrapping paper. Think of a pattern on that. And then virtually wrapping a three-dimensional object with that texture. So it's, it's a virtual three-dimensional object. So it's kind of like taking wrapping paper and wrapping it around a box. Let's say you've got a box, you've got a gift, you're going to give somebody... You got some wrapping paper. You have to take this wrapping paper that's in a two-dimensional format, that being a flat sheet of paper, and wrap it around a three-dimensional object, that being a rectangular or cubicle-type box. And you have to fold the pattern around the contours of the box in order to wrap it, which is easier to do with simple geometric shapes, but as you introduce more complicated shapes, it gets harder to do very well. And it doesn't take very much to do to make this really hard. I mean, you can, if you wanted to map a simple 2D shape, like a pattern of squares on a 3D object, like a sphere, you're going to run into problems. Because if you took an actual sphere, like a physical sphere, and you had wrapping paper that had boxes on it, like, let's say it's just black and white boxes on it, a checked pattern almost, and you wrap that sphere with that wrapping paper, you're going to find that it's going to require you to cut the paper in such a way that at some point on the surface of the sphere, the pattern would no longer be continuous. There'd be a break in the pattern. The same thing can happen with texture mapping, and it means that your graphic quality can suffer as a result. It can become noticeable. The polygonal texture mapping strategy did require less processing power to cover 3D objects with textures, however. So you have a trade-off. The quality of the graphics might not be quite as high, but you can render them much more quickly, which could improve things like the refresh rate. While NVIDIA was working on this, another company came out with a product that had a big impact on the graphics card industry, and it also led to conditions that convinced me to get out of PC gaming for quite some time. Not putting blame here, just that It it created an environment that I got increasingly disenchanted with. The company, and their product was not a bad one, by the way, the company was 3DFX Interactive. It launched a year after NVIDIA had incorporated, so it launched in 1994. And in 95, they introduced a 3D accelerated graphics card called the Voodoo. And this card was different from other graphics cards that had come before it. Because up to that point, graphics cards would typically integrate 2D and 3D graphics processing on a single motherboard. But 3DFX created a card solely dedicated to 3D graphics. So you could not just have a voodoo graphics card in a computer and have that be your only graphics card and have that work. You actually had to make it work with in parallel with a 2D graphics card, or really in series. Because what you would do is you would take a VGA cable from your video controller card, your, your basic graphics card in your computer. You would feed that cable into your voodoo card. You would plug it in on the back of where the expansion card is. And then you'd take another cable and you'd hook the voodoo card to your monitor. So you effectively had two different graphics cards doing work inside your computer, the voodoo, handling all the 3D stuff. And it gave gamers a new option when building out computers to play games like Doom and Quake, which were progressively putting more emphasis on 3D models. And they were pushing the boundaries of what PCs could do at that time. Before the voodoo, the most common way to keep up with gaming developments would be you'd go and get an upgrade to your cpu which get it really expensive so i remember when my family went from having a 286 ibm compatible to a 486 and then later on we got a pentium but these graphics accelerator cards meant you could just buy a graphics accelerator card for for much less money than it would cost to upgrade the whole cpu and you could insert it into an expansion slot inside your computer plug up a few cables and provide the processing if you would need to have really great graphics. But it also helped usher in an era in which new graphics cards would debut at an alarmingly frequent rate and make the previous cards obsolete very, very shortly <laughs> after they had debuted. Some were 2D cards that also had 3D accelerators on them. Some of them were dedicated 3D accelerators like the Voodoo. And more games were coming out that would push the limits on the fastest processors on the market. So it became this vicious cycle where you would have brand new cards coming out that were much more capable than the old ones. So everyone wanted one because you thought, ooh, faster means better. More features means better. Developers would start developing games that would take advantage of those greater capabilities. So while it would seem in the very short term that you were getting a head start – by getting one of these powerful cards, pretty soon developers would end up creating applications that would push those cards to their limits. And it just became this kind of seesaw approach. And that's when I decided, I don't want to deal with this. And I stopped being a PC gamer for a while and I switched to consoles for for quite some time. I did eventually go back to PC gamer, but uh, it was in this era of... Numerous graphics cards, and it weren't they weren't just graphics cards too they you also had sound cards that were doing a very similar thing at the same time, and it was causing all sorts of issues, things like questions about compatibility and affordability. I just it was too frustrating for me, but it was a boom time for pc gamers who were you know eager to pursue that hobby, and they weren't weren't put off by the idea that there was suddenly a ton of different products out there. Now, it did not help that by 1996, you were looking at around 70 companies that were marketing graphics cards of some sort. Some of them were working with technology that was compatible with the OpenGL standard. Many more were developing uh, cards that were specifically geared to support Microsoft's direct 3D application programming interface. And more than a few had their own proprietary application programmer interface that that developers could use to create software that would look fantastic if it ran on those cards. There was a ton of market confusion, not just for end consumers, but also for programmers who were making software in the first place. Well, the Voodoo from 3DFX, actually, it would officially debut in 1996. And the following year, NVIDIA would come out with their second commercial product, This was their follow-up to the NV1. This was the NV3, because the NV2 was canceled. This one was better known as the RIVA 128. RIVA, or R-I-V-A, stood for Real-Time Interactive Video and Animation Accelerator. And this was a 128-bit 3D processor. That's why the 128 was in the name. And that means the processor and buses could operate on 128-bit integers, or data units that were 16 octets wide. This gave the Riva 128 a bandwidth of 1.6 gigabytes per second, which is the same thing as 12.8 gigabits per second. Incredible bandwidth. The processor was a big hit with OEM, or Original Equipment Manufacturer Customers. So these were companies that either made computers or they made uh, graphics cards and they would incorporate the Riva 128 in them. It had four megabytes of RAM and a 206 megahertz processor. Um, There was a faster model that came out shortly thereafter called the Riva 128ZX. That one had an additional four megabytes of RAM, bringing it up to eight and had a clock speed of 250 megahertz. This chip was sold to those original equipment manufacturers, and uh, one of them was Diamond, which had uh, also been one of the OEMs for the original NV1 chip. They introduced the Diamond Viper 330, which had a Revo 128 chip as its 3D graphics accelerator. And I read some reviews of the Revo 128 from that era. I actually found, you can find reviews online that date back to when this chip came out, because... The web was a thing in 1997. And the reviews were pretty positive. Critics were impressed with the 3D performance. The reviews also uh, said that, you know, obviously the quality of the performance didn't come just from NVIDIA, but also from the manufacturers that produced the other uh, equipment, the the graphics cards themselves, like the motherboard for the, the that the chip was sitting on. So it was more than just NVIDIA, but NVIDIA overall came out looking pretty good from the Riva 128. However, it did create a brand new problem for NVIDIA, but this one was a welcome problem, not a bad one. It turned out the company was not able to keep up with demand because the Revo 128 was a huge economic and critical success for the company. And so NVIDIA would sign a manufacturing deal with TSMC to supplement manufacturing that was already going on with their established partner. They had been manufacturing uh, chips through a company called ST-Micro, or Microsystems, and they decided to supplement that and use a secondary, uh, second partner to provide even more of these. By the end of 1997, NVIDIA had gone from a struggling company on the verge of collapse to owning 24% of the market share in 3D graphics processors. Not a bad turnaround. And as it turns out, they had higher heights to climb. I'll say more in just a moment, but first let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com.
1: Today I'm going to give you some
0: straightforward
1: advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time, time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by a guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber. Live like a gigendian. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit AT&T.com slash hypergig for details. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast. Is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my god.
0: At this stage, the market was starting to clear out a little bit. Some of the companies that had entered the graphics card space were starting to go out of business, but there were three companies that were essentially dominating the high-performance graphics card space. Those three companies were ATI, 3DFX, and NVIDIA. Some companies, in an effort to survive in this increasingly narrow market, began to focus on creating budget graphics cards That had fewer features, they had a slightly lower performance level, uh, and they were generally of a lower cost, so that would put them in the range of a different market for gamers. But NVIDIA was on pretty solid ground. Now, they wanted to follow up on the success of the Riva 128 with their next card, which was the Riva TNT, also known as the NV4 TNT stood for Twin Texel because this card actually added a parallel pixel pipeline. It's a lot of P's there to get the pop filter going. Uh, but this would double the rendering speed for the card. And it was a 2D and 3D graphics card. It had support for 32-bit true color graphics. They had expanded the RAM up to 16 megabytes, and it was available both in PCI and AGP formats. Those would be the buses that you could use with uh, personal computers. And there was two different uh, formats for buses. The AGP was the newer one of the two and the superior one as far as performance goes of the two. But they, NVIDIA at this time, were mostly focused on PCI simply because AGP had not rolled out to a very wide user base yet. It was still new enough where it was not Uh, widely adopted as the new standard yet. The one downside to NVIDIA's design was that the complexity of the chip they had made with the TNT meant they weren't able to run it at what they had originally planned with their memory core speed. They originally wanted to have a memory core speed of 125 megahertz, but they found out that because they had made the chip so, or the card so complex, they had packed it with so much stuff that if they tried to run it at 125 megahertz, the card would overheat. So they were forced to throttle the speed down to 90 megahertz to avoid those overheating issues. The big competitor to the TNT was 3DFX's Voodoo 2 card, which in benchmark tests pretty much dominated the 3D acceleration world. But the Voodoo 2 still required a second 2D graphics card to work. It was not a standalone all-in-one card, So if you were to add up costs, if you were building a brand new PC from the ground up, you're buying all the different components. If you went with a Voodoo 2, the costs actually would go up a bit because you had to have a secondary graphics card in order to run the Voodoo 2. Whereas NVIDIA's TNT was an all-in-one. You could just buy one card and get all of that. So it all depended on what your needs were and what you already had at your disposal. Also, behind the scenes, 3DFX was trying to head off competitors like NVIDIA and ATI by marketing and selling their graphics card boards themselves directly. So 3DFX, in order to do this, purchased a company called STB Systems for $141 million in a stock deal. But it turned out the cost of manufacturing ended up being higher with STB Systems Foundry than the foundries that ATI and and NVIDIA were using. So the the actual expenses of producing the boards was higher than competitors' costs. And so that would eat into your profit margin if you're still trying to price your your cards competitively against ATI and NVIDIA. So 3DFX's misstep became NVIDIA's opportunity because some of 3DFX's former partners began to drift over to work with NVIDIA instead. But while NVIDIA was doing well against its competitors, specifically through the TNT card, it was dealing with other issues that were not so great. Silicon Graphics Incorporated, now SGI, filed a lawsuit against NVIDIA. The company alleged that NVIDIA had infringed on a patent related to texture mapping. That dispute would stretch from the spring of 1998 all the way into 1999, but eventually the two companies would reach a settlement. And as part of that settlement, NVIDIA would actually get SGI's professional graphics portfolio, and they hired on several of SGI's low-level graphics team members. And SGI sort of transitioned out of the graphics business at that point and started to focus on other uh, areas of business. It never really worked out for that company. Uh, The company, SGI, was already reeling from other problems, and it would ultimately go into bankruptcy in 2009. NVIDIA released the TNT 2 and the TNT 2 Ultra the following year, which effectively wrested the title of Most Powerful 3D Accelerator away from 3DFX and the Voodoo 3 card, at least in most benchmark tests. Graphics cards are weird, by the way. You typically test these by running various uh, tests that that check the different settings and different features of these graphics cards. And it's not always a one-to-one match. You don't always have features that measure up uh, where there's an equivalent on a competing card. So depending on the test, you might have one card come out on top, and then you change tests and you run those same two cards through it, and the other card comes out on top. So it's a little complicated to talk about. But this was a point where NVIDIA's performance was looked at as best in class, at least at that moment. Uh, And also keep in mind, we're still talking about a world that had different APIs out there that developers were using to build software uh, that had 3D graphics in it. And so sometimes you would find a program that would run really well on a computer that had a 3DFX card, but not as well on a computer that had an NVIDIA card. And then meanwhile, you might get a different program made by a different developer that the opposite is true. So it's very complicated. On October 1st, 1999, NVIDIA would define a new era because it announced a new graphics card called the GeForce 256. It had previously had the codename NV10. This was the first chip to get the designation of GPU, or graphics processing unit. The very first GPU was an NVIDIA product called the GeForce 256. So What was different about this card? What was it that merited the creation of a new term? Well, it had a transformation and lighting engine, which tackled floating point calculations to figure out how to render transforming virtual three-dimensional objects and display them in a two-dimensional representation of the image. Wait, what? All right, this is actually not as complicated as I just made it sound. In fact, a lot of you probably are way ahead of me, but just in case, here's what I actually mean by that. Let's imagine for a second that you can pop into the virtual world of a computer, kind of like in Tron. So you are in a virtual world, and in this virtual world, you can see three-dimensional objects, right? There are three-dimensional objects all around you. They truly have those three dimensions. Now, in the computer world, that's all represented by math. They are just virtual objects. But let's pretend that we are in that virtual world. We can see them. And we can see how those objects transform as they move through a space and environment. Maybe they change shape. Maybe it it represents a character in a video game. And as the character moves, we see how this shape changes. We can see how light from fixed sources can play over the surfaces of these three-dimensional images. We can see where shadows form, where highlights are. Now. Let's say that we we have these three-dimensional images that exist in this virtual world, and now it's time for us to display those images to the real world. And our, our method of doing that, our medium, is a computer display. But computer displays are not three-dimensional. They are two-dimensional. They have width and length, but they don't have depth. And so you have to figure out, how do I portray this virtual three-dimensional image it has stuff like lighting effects going on with it in a way that makes sense within a two-dimensional medium so that you get the idea of what that object, how that object is shaped. Before the GeForce 256, the CPU handled that sort of work, this transformation and lighting work. But the CPU was also doing all the other work, too, besides the other graphics processing. And that meant That if you added in too much detail in your game, everything would bog down and run super slowly or maybe even crash because the CPU would be so busy trying to calculate all the information required to display that kind of stuff that it couldn't do anything else. But by moving that requirement over to the graphics card, the GPU could free the CPU up to do other calculations. And the bandwidth of the GPU was super high, high enough to handle a massive amount of data. So as long as the processor was fast, it could go through this information very quickly. In fact, the GeForce 256 had a throughput that was about five times greater than that of a 550 megahertz Pentium 3 processor. So for certain types of applications, a GPU is going to be much better than a CPU. Plus, the GPU had onboard memory. It included a second set of parallel pixel pipelines. That meant you had four total. That was double the TNT design. And game design developers now could create games with much more detail without fear of causing a total slowdown on a system. It was a literal game changer. The clock speed for the GeForce 256 was technically slower than that of the Riva TNT 2. So, They actually took a step down in their clock speed. They didn't make it faster than the previous graphics card. However, the improvements they made in the architecture meant that the GeForce 256 still performed at a 50% faster speed than the TNT2, even though the clock speed was slower. Now, up to this point, I've gone through the NVIDIA cards more or less one by one because they were really important for the foundation and success of the company and its rise from startup to industry giant. But from this point forward, I'm going to be jumping around a bit. Otherwise, all I'm going to be doing is giving you a long list of graphics cards and their specifications, and that is not terribly interesting. It's like reading a catalog. However, around this time, things were still in that pretty chaotic stage in the gaming rig world. Uh, You had a small number of companies that were dominating the graphics card scene at the very top. But there were lots of different budget companies out there. There were other companies that would occasionally create a high-performing graphics card to try and compete with ATI, 3DFX, and NVIDIA. And there were also the companies that were specializing in sound cards. Uh, There were the different application programming interfaces. There were the different drivers that were meant to try and make more compatibility between different hardware and software. It was still a huge, confusing mess for a lot of people, including myself. I remember the days of looking at a game and wondering if I could even play it because it might not be compatible with one or more of the components inside my PC. It was a real mess. And not all the companies that were around at that point would survive, but NVIDIA would. Now, when we come back I'll give you a little last look at what NVIDIA has been up to, and we'll kind of rush through the rest of its, uh, of its history to kind of give you the highlights. But first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com.
1: Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time, time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a there. Available wherever you will get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico,
0: and you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R.com. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward
1: advice on how to deal with
0: In 1999, Nvidia announced a new line of products called Quadro Cards. These were meant not for gaming rigs, but for professional workstations. So, Nvidia's branching out at this point. The GPU was showing that it had some interesting uses outside of rendering graphics for gamers. Although, at this point, it was really still about high end, graphically intensive workstations. But speaking of games, Nvidia also landed a pretty sweet contract with Microsoft. Microsoft was developing its own game console, which at that point was still a super-secret project, and it wouldn't come out until November 2001. Obviously, that was the original Xbox, and Microsoft wanted NVIDIA to build the graphics chip that would be inside the system. So the initial payment for that chip, which was called the NV2A internally at NVIDIA, was $200 million, a healthy chunk of change. One might even say a princely sum. By the end of the fiscal year, NVIDIA had made a profit of $41 million, which was 10 times more than the previous year's profit. That's a heck of a lot of growth. It's really nice to be able to point to a number and say, we made 10 times as much money this year. Not not 10 times the revenue, 10 times the profit. The following year saw NVIDIA sweep up a former competitor, or begin to anyway. 3DFX, 3DFX, which had transformed the PC gaming industry in the mid-90s when they launched the Voodoo 3D Accelerator cards, had essentially started to burn itself out. It had made some bad acquisitions. Uh, Some of the cards they had created just weren't performing well in the marketplace. And NVIDIA made a move to acquire 3DFX, mostly for the intellectual property and for some of their engineers. And it began the acquisition process uh, starting at the tail end of 2000. But this acquisition process was incredibly painful and troublesome. There were a ton of different court cases that came out from creditors uh, who said that, you know, 3DFX had owed them a lot of money and therefore they deserved a larger slice of cash from the acquisition. So that process did not officially conclude until 2008. So it was like an eight-year acquisition process. That's pretty painful. At this point, ATI was still the dominant name in graphics cards. NVIDIA was in second place, but that would quickly switch where NVIDIA was finally able to kind of overtake ATI. Uh, The follow-up of the GeForce 256 was the GeForce 2, which seems like a prequel to me. But anyway, GeForce 2 line of cards were the first from NVIDIA to support multiple monitor configurations, which is something we take for granted these days then after that came the GeForce 3 that debuted in February 2001, and NVIDIA introduced some new technologies with these cards, implementing processor-saving features like one called Lightspeed Memory Architecture, or LMA. Essentially, what LMA did to pixels is the same thing that MP3 files do to sound. It's a it's sort of a compression strategy. So what I mean by that is MP3 compression, one of the strategies MP3 uses is it analyzes the sound within a file. And it says, anything that appears to be outside the range of human hearing, we're just going to get rid of that data. We don't need it because no one can hear it anyway. If you can't hear it, we don't need to save it. And that saves space, right? We aren't saving all that extraneous information. LMA does the same thing except with pixels. It would indicate like, well, these pixels are being blocked on the screen by some other component. So there's no need to save this information because those pixels are not going to be displayed. Let's say it's pixels that represent a character and the character passes behind something that is, uh, uh, blocking your view of the character. Well, there's no reason to keep the information of the pixels that relate to the character at that point because you can't see it anyway. So, uh, it was uh, called uh, a process called Z occlusion culling, and it would help save uh, save bandwidth because you don't need as much you're not sending as much data through. So you can uh, you don't have to worry about taking up so much bandwidth space. This marked a turning point for Nvidia. This was the point where Nvidia overtook ATI as the industry leader. Actually, there was a couple of shifts here. At this point, Nvidia commanded thirty one percent of the graphics market. Intel was in second place with 26%, and ATI had fallen to third place at 17%. Now, that would not remain steady over the next few years. Uh, Companies would swap places a couple times, but it did show that NVIDIA had now become a a truly dominant player in this space. Then we get the GeForce 4 that came out in February 2002. Uh, There were several budget models that came out along with that series, and they were in a line called MX. They were actually focused uh, or built largely upon the architecture from GeForce 2, not GeForce 4. So even though they were part of the GeForce 4 series, they were based on an on a earlier, and some would say, outdated architecture. And they had limited features, but they also had a lower price point. So here NVIDIA was saying, I'm seeing all these other companies coming out with budget uh, graphics cards aimed at a different target audience. What if we went after those people and we just start creating budget, uh, lower feature graphics cards? And that's sort of what this this was. Fortune would name NVIDIA the fastest growing company in the United States in 2002. And in 2003, NVIDIA acquired a company called MediaQ that specialized in graphics and multimedia technology for wireless devices is where we start seeing NVIDIA getting into mobile technology as well. This is also the year when Nvidia co-founder Curtis Priam retires and it's also the year Nvidia would release the first cards in its GeForce FX series including one that became infamous the GeForce 5800 it had a nickname in the industry it was the dustbuster why well the dustbuster or GeForce 5800 had a dual slot cooling mechanism double fan cooling takes up two slots high powered, very loud. So people said, "Oh, it sounds like you got a vacuum cleaner inside your computer because it's it's so distracting, so loud." Uh this was a a, a piece of technology that was built in part by some of the engineers that Nvidia had pulled over from 3DFX. And uh that it, it got a lot of ribbing in the industry for the fact that it was it was so loud. Uh but others in the FX line would end up getting some acclaim. The company created a demo as well in this, in 2003. Uh, the demo was called Dawn, D-A-W-N. And it was all meant to show off the various features of what the, uh, the, the GeForce FX line of graphics cards was capable of doing. And the way it did this was it showed a female fairy, well, wings, translucent wings, Translucent outfit, um, the the naughty bits were covered by opaque costuming, but the rest of it was see-through, and the fairy was very curvaceous. Uh, a lot of people called out NVIDIA, saying it was the most blatant use of sex appeal to try and sell a graphics card up to that date. Uh, so they got some criticism for their use of this particular visual uh effect in order to try and sell cards. In 2004, SLI technology would debut, and that would allow users to link together multiple GPUs to boost performance even further. That is where you start seeing these crazy gaming rigs that have um, multiple GPUs linked together, plus typically some sort of crazy cooling system. Because as you start adding more CPU and GPU power to a system, it's going to generate more heat. And heat and electronics don't go well together. If they get hot enough, things tend to break down. So there are a lot of uh, innovative cooling systems that came out around this time as well to try and keep those temperatures at uh, at at nominal levels so things would still operate well. In 2005, NVIDIA would... Uh, get the contract to develop the graphics processor for Sony's PlayStation 3 console. So they'd already developed the one for Xbox. Now they were developing the one for PlayStation 3. And in 2006, NVIDIA introduced the 7900 GX2, which was the first of NVIDIA's cards to feature two GPU single boards packaged as a single product. So it was a a dual GPU all-in-one package. On October 25th, 2006, AMD would acquire... ATI the competitor to Nvidia that acquisition was a huge deal it was like 5.4 billion dollars an enormous deal and now it was no longer Nvidia versus ATI now it was Nvidia versus AMD and remember that uh, Jensen Huang the president and CEO of Nvidia the co-founder of Nvidia had had worked for AMD for a while in June 2007 NVIDIA introduced a line of math coprocessors called Tesla. Now, these initially used architecture that was originally built for the GeForce and Quadro products, and they are general-purpose GPUs, because now there was this emerging opportunity to use GPUs to tackle other problems besides rendering graphics. GPUs can power supercomputers, and they can perform... Uh, calculations that have high floating operations per seconds or or flops. They can handle huge amounts of data and, and, and perform lots of operations in a short amount of time. The big difference between the Tesla GPUs and the ones that were powering gaming rigs is that the Tesla versions didn't have any output to displays because that's not what they were for. They weren't meant to create graphics. They were meant to crunch numbers. And, uh, I think this really does mark the beginning of using GPUs to do some pretty phenomenal stuff. And we see it in a lot of parallel processing applications where you have these problems that can be broken up into smaller parts. A lot of GPUs are really good at handling that kind of stuff. The GeForce 8 series would come out from NVIDIA and included chipsets that had high lead solder and inadequate cooling mechanisms. So there were a substantial number—not all of them—but a substantial number of cards that had GeForce 8 series chips in them that ended up suffering failures because of overheating issues. Uh, this led to NVIDIA writing off about a couple hundred million dollars worth of uh, of product. Not to mention, it led to lawsuits that alleged that the CEO, Jensen Huang, and the CFO, Marvin Burkett, were aware of these manufacturing problems, but they didn't say anything about it. They attempted to go forward despite these issues. And uh, according to one source, the full amount the company incurred as a cost relating to this problem ended up being around $476 million. And one of the uh, sources I was reading said it's unfortunate that this happened. It ended up being such a a black mark against NVIDIA's reputation that a lot of people to this day hold it against the company um, because it was – it came across as so deceptive. And it um, and seemed like it was exploiting the customer base. NVIDIA would stumble again, at least according to a lot of critics, with the GeForce 9 series. A lot of people said that it didn't really have very much, very many innovative factors. But uh, NVIDIA would introduce new microarchitecture, codenamed Fermi, in 2010 with the launch of a new series, the GeForce 400 series, uh, which did not. It didn't equal the performance of AMD's flagship cards, but it was more affordable, and it performed well enough. It just wasn't at the same uh, level of metrics that AMD's flagships were performing at. And NVIDIA had also throttled the clock speed of the cards on on that series, largely in order to make sure that power consumption stayed at nominal levels, But it did mean that if you were a serious gamer and you didn't mind getting your your hands a little dirty, uh, metaphorically speaking, you could overclock your GPU. You could make it run faster than what it was supposed to run because NVIDIA had been very conservative and had throttled it. The actual top speed of the processing units was much higher than what NVIDIA put it out to be. So If you wanted to, you could overclock it, get some better performance out of it. NVIDIA followed up Fermi with other microarchitecture designs. You had Kepler, uh, you had Maxwell, Pascal, and Turing. And just in general, the way microarchitecture tends to work, uh, Intel does this as well, is that you get what Intel calls the tick-tock approach, where in tick, you create a uh, a new layout of your of your microprocessor that has smaller components. It's when you've shrunk things down so that you can fit more individual components on the same amount of chip space as the previous generation. So uh, think of it as like cramming more employees into the same office space, and and so you can keep doing that. Especially if you get smaller employees, right? They take up less space individually then the talk side is where you end up fine tuning the layout of the office space to accommodate the fact that you've crammed more employees in there so when i talk about these different microarchitecture designs it's a combination of things it's creating die sets that have smaller components so you can cram more of them onto that chip and it's rearranging the orientation of those components so that they operate at a greater efficiency, and so each of those changes in microarchitecture represent an attempt to produce more power, more efficiently than the previous generation of chips, and that's generally how we see all microprocessors, whether they're CPUs or GPUs, how they how they continue, and uh, we're still seeing it today. Nvidia is still one of the top Names in graphics cards. And uh, uh, their CEO, Jensen Huang, is worth more than $6 billion. He is the 61st highest paid CEO. Not bad for somebody who back in 1993 said, Yeah, why don't we give this a shot? So, a pretty amazing story. And like I said, I, I really skipped over quite a lot in this last section. You know, I didn't go card by card because, frankly, to go through all those specifications and explain their relevance would mean having to do companion episodes about the evolution of graphics in uh, in computers in general uh, and programming and the whole thought process behind graphics cards as well, and it would require a lot more, a lot, several more episodes. The important thing to remember now is that NVIDIA is not just making these graphics cards for for gamers, although they still do that, obviously, but that they have branched out into other areas. GPUs these days are being used in all sorts of fields, including artificial intelligence and deep learning, machine learning, that kind of stuff. So we're seeing a lot more uh, relevance of GPUs, also used in Bitcoin mining, uh, in in, uh, cryptography. We're seeing... Tons of applications of GPUs far beyond making Lara Croft look amazing as she runs through the jungle. So, pretty phenomenal story. I hope you enjoyed this episode or these episodes about NVIDIA. Uh, In our next episodes, we're going to cover totally different topics. So, stick around if you guys have suggestions for future topics. Maybe there's a company I should cover, a person in tech, a technology in particular that you would like to hear more about. Send me an email. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle at both of those is techstuff, HSW. Go to tech techstuff. That's T E E slash techstuff for all your Tech Stuff merchandise needs. We got some cool stuff over there and every purchase helps out the show, so we appreciate it. And don't forget, follow us on Instagram. And I'll talk to you again really soon.
1: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.